If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's good to see you. Hey, that scripture, that's a, that's a real provocative scripture, isn't it? That's a spooky, scary scripture right there. Just thinking about that. Jesus is pretty emphatic about what he's saying here. I mean, there's no like hedging or gray area. He's just like, hmm. And uh, says, no servant can serve two masters. Well, that's reasonable. Uh, he either will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. And then I said, well, okay, that's, that's reasonable. And then he puts a face to this. He says, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah, what? You can't serve God and money. And it's interesting that it's the only time that I, I can find, really, where he's pointed out something that is like God and puts them in a head-to-head contest with each other. God versus money, money versus God. And he uses really the kind of terms that you would use for someone who's serving God. Servant, serving a master, love, that sort of thing, devotion. These are, these are like statements or words that you would attribute to someone who's actually serving or loving a personality, something that has life, that's God. And when he said this, the Pharisees, who hang on to every word to see what they might criticize, I don't know whether they were Democrats or Republicans, <laughs> but they... Uh, I'm sorry, I, I promise never to talk politics, but I... The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, ridiculed him for his statement. So if, if you haven't guessed, I'm going to talk about money, and that's a topic that every last one of you have a certain amount of interest in, wouldn't you say? Is there anyone in the room says, I'm not interested in money? No, I, th- I think probably most of us are. We, so in Luke, we have a collection of parables about money. Jesus talks about the prodigal who wanted his money up front. He didn't want to wait for dad to die. He wanted his inheritance. He wanted to go out and make his way in the world. And we all know that didn't turn out very well. And uh, he lost everything, had to come back home. And I think his dad behaved wonderfully. Uh, talks about the Pharisees, who were religious people, but actually who would say they serve God, but they, they were lovers of money. That's pretty blunt. They served a different God. And, and then there's stories in there as well about Lazarus and rich man. Lazarus was poor. And rich man uh, was, uh, wore purple linens and fancy clothes and ate sumptuously. And Lazarus was just hoping for some crumbs from his table to survive the inequity that was there. Jesus talks about money. And in fact, he talks more about money than he does heaven and hell combined, and it, therefore, it must be of interest and something really important that he wants to 
say to us. Now, people, uh, most people are colorblind when it comes to money. We don't, we, don't, we don't view money the way Jesus just described it to us. Uh, we view money as a morally neutral resource. It's just how you use it that matters, see? And uh, it's intended for short-term supply, benefits here on earth, provide for our families and ourselves. But Jesus had a different perspective about money. And how many of you know we need to gain Jesus' perspective on things? Because we're, we're Jesus' people. And he talks about money in a totally different way. See, money is faith-charged. It's a faith product. Using money requires faith because money really by itself has no value. It's a piece of paper. That's all it is. It's a piece of paper. By itself, there's no real value. It's just a piece of paper, is there? Now, if I were to give you this and say, why don't you take someone else out to lunch today? Use this here. I don't think you could even get a Happy Meal with this, could you? But if we were to unwrap this, and I would say, see that? That says 50 on it. You're probably wondering who I held up to get this 50. <laughs> which one of these would you rather have? Come on, tell me. Which one? 50. <laughs> 50. Wait, don't you see? If I, if I brought someone up here and blindfolded them and put one of these bills in each of their hands and said, which one is more valuable? He couldn't tell me, could he? They're just paper. That's all it is. But therefore, it requires faith. If we said, go to lunch with this, you don't have faith it could buy you lunch. But if I said, go to lunch with this, you would have faith that you probably could have a pretty good lunch on this. Isn't that right? But it has to do with faith because money in itself has no inherent value. Webster defines money as something generally accepted as a medium of exchange, measure of value, means of payment. And so to use money is you have to put trust in it. You trust others, as a matter of fact, a lot of others. Now, I want to read to you a quote from an economist. This is not a preacher. This is an economist who's going to tell us what money is. Listen. He says, quote, Franz Dorman says, the acceptance of money is based on faith that others will accept the coins or bills at some point in the future in exchange for good or service. He says, confidence or faith in money is crucial because by itself, money has no real value. The intrinsic value of paper money is even less than that of coins. Now, the value of currency depends more than ever on the faith people put in it because today money can be created at will. Today, governments can and do produce money out of thin air. and have it maintain its value. Underlying the principle is deep faith in the infallibility of the government. Isn't it interesting? I hold two pieces of paper. 
you want this one. The paper costs the same. The reason you want this one, because the number 50 creates in you a belief in the infallibility of the government who prints paper and calls it money. Now, I'm not here to talk about government, or I'm here to talk about what Jesus is saying to us. Because how you view money shapes your faith. No servant can serve two masters. Outstanding statements, provocative. Hate one, love the other. You can't serve God or money. Well, therefore, what is money? Well, money's power and can color your heart. Depends on the way that you view and use money. It, it shapes our perspective and attitude and passions and priorities. It's a heart issue, really. And God's after your faith because without faith or trust, it's impossible to please him. And he's after your heart. So he wants your faith and he wants your heart. The heart is the arena of faith. So whenever you touch money, money touches you. And it can affect your faith and your heart. Jesus wants us to be free. That's why he come, to set us free. So he deals with this topic. It's hugely important. It's the other competing God that you are wrestling with every day of your life. Jesus taught that there exists an either-or situation in your life. Let's just make this really simple. It's either God or it's money that's your God. That's what he's saying. It's an either-or situation. Where your treasure is, he says, that's where your heart's going to be also. And he personifies money. This is a this is really something. He, it, it, he doesn't see it as just uh, something impersonal. He sees it as personal. He personifies money when he says it's something you can serve. You can only serve God. You can only serve a God. It's something you can serve. He, he reveals it as a power and as a personality, as a force and a power that demands our trust and makes promises. That's what God does. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. He says, believe in me. He requires our faith. That's why you're here. You believed in him. You trusted him. You trusted that he has made provision for your sins. He had faith. And along with that, he makes promises. Promises that he will supply all of our needs. He says, if I take care of the birds of the field and flowers, I'll take care of you. Don't worry. Just trust me. I'll take care of you. He is so detailed about us that he says he's numbered the hairs of her. He doesn't know how many. He's not just saying how many hairs you have on your He's numbered them. He knows today I lost number 40,758. <laughs> that number is no longer existing up there. It's gone. I mean, the detail by which God knows us, and, the, and he invites us to ask of him, and we receive. So he requires our trust, and he makes promises. Now, on the opposite end of the scale, there's another God. Jesus calls it money. Money also demands our faith and trust, and you do. You trust a 50 over a 1, don't you? 
It demands our faith and trust, and it makes promises. It says, if you serve me, if it's about me, money, then I will promise you security, financial security. Not only that, money promises to make you godlike because it says, I will guarantee you financial independence. You don't have to trust that God because I can make you like a God in yourself, independent. Money says, if you trust me and you believe in me, I can get you stuff that'll make you happy. Happy. It's amazing. The other day I, I saw uh, a boat for sale. I wasn't shopping for it. It just popped up. Uh, I, I read a boating forum, and here was a boat for sale called a super yacht. $80 million. Can you imagine that? Just think of that, a boat for $80 million. I mean, it gets higher and higher. So we see the competition here between God and, and money. They have the same requirements, faith and trust, and they make promises. One is trustworthy, one is a trick. It's, it's, it's a bait and switch. Can't fall for it. And money would use us, make us its servants, make us subordinate to its aims. Not only that, there's an evil aspect of this false god. Several of them, in fact. Because money perverts human relationships. It corrupts and causes people to betray one another in order to have it. It causes people to steal and deceive one another. Judas' act of betrayal was a purchase act. The scripture says they promised to give him money and he sought opportunity to betray him. That's what money does. The Bible's full of stories about people who've been compromised because of this God. Jacob wanted the inheritance and he deceived his dad and stole from his brother to get the inheritance. Sadly, mama helped him do it. Talk about a dysfunctional family. The mama's boy and the daddy's boy. Joseph's brothers were going to kill him, and Judah, one of his brothers, said, hey, we got a better idea. Here comes a caravan. We can make some money on this deal. And they sold their brother into slavery. You remember the story in Acts of Ananias and Sapphira who sold land for, and then they lied about it? It didn't turn out real well for them. But they, they lied about the proceeds. See, money colors our character and it blemishes our integrity. And it's often the greatest test in our life of perverting relationships and enslaving people. Slavery is alive and well in our world today. I have a friend, business guy, he's a kingdom guy, loves Jesus. He buys slaves in Nepal in order to set them free, educate them, and set them up in businesses. But slavery is big business. We all know about human trafficking. It's tragic, isn't it? People are seen as commodities to be sold or traded or rented. But here's something more acceptable, but it's still the same. The St. Louis Cardinals 
paid $130 million for Paul Goldsmith. He's a commodity. They bought him. They own him. They can trade him. Well, that's not as steep as Bryce Harper went to the Phillies for $330 million. That's a week's wages, isn't it? Just think every time he steps up the plate how much that means. Just to hit a little ball. Well, slavery is when a person is seen as a commodity to be sold, owned, or rented, and Jesus was betrayed and turned into merchandise. And it enables us to see that relationships are often subordinated by this God of money. It's intolerable. Politicians are corrupted by it. People steal it, divorce over it, fight over it, murder for it. I saw a guy was a young man was convicted for killing his dad because even though I think he might have been in his 30s or 40s, he was receiving an allowance of so many thousand dollars a month, and his dad's gonna call cut back the allowance. He killed his dad. This is incomprehensible to me. Families are divided, friendships are dissolved. Jesus said. This is the way it is. You either love God or you love money. Now, you think, all of us here in this room think we don't really love money, but he, he's, he's going to nail us today because he wants to see us set free. You see, what you love, you identify with and you become. There's an assimilation between us and what we love. To love Jesus, you love Jesus? To love Jesus is to be connected to him and become like him. It's to be joined to Jesus in everything, our life, death, resurrection, and future glory, because love binds us to the spiritual future of that which we love. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be, and he's after our heart. Where's your treasure? Where's your heart? Because see, Jesus is saying that biblical love cannot be shared. You love one, you hate the other. And he said, if you love money, it says in Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.10, if you love money, that becomes the root of all kinds of evil. And it says, even Christians, believers, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced them through, so through with many sorrows. Because that's the end of this God, lure you in and pierce you through later with many sorrows. Love of money is simply a sin. It leads to pride and it leads to a sense of independence. It uh, domination, our own autonomy. What about, John, uh, I, I think I'm okay in this area. We, we, we give money and we don't let it control us. And we don't have to buy the latest thing. I think, I think we're doing okay and we love Jesus. But here's, here's one of the toughest stories in all the Bible. There was a young ruler, rich young ruler, that came to Jesus and wanted to join Jesus' little church. Now, I imagine if you were one of those disciples, you'd be pretty thrilled about this because they've probably been not eaten very high off the hog, as we'd say, where I come from. And I'm sorry I use that. That means tenderloins and hams. They weren't eating that. They didn't eat pigs anyway. But where I come from in the South, low on the hog is... Pig's feet and stuff like that. High on the hogs of the loins. Just say they weren't eating very well. 
And this rich young ruler come to Jesus and wanted to follow him, and they thought, oh boy, we, this would be a great addition to our little band. It would mean we will have prime rib tonight or filet mignon or something like that. This is great. And then they listen to the interaction. They're pretty excited about this. Now, you don't read this in the Bible. I just know it's there. And Jesus, you do read this. Jesus said to that rich young ruler, oh, you want to join our group here? You want to follow me? Yes. Go and sell. And I imagine they're going, yeah, yeah. Go and sell all. Yeah, guy's rich. And give, yes, to the poor. And uh, all that imagined money into their little group disappeared in an instant. Now, here's the interesting thing. This guy was a moral man, it appears. He obeyed all the commandments that he knew of. He kept them from his youth up. He gave money to the poor. What? Why did Jesus make this absolutely unreasonable request that he sell everything and dissipate it all? Here's why. Because Jesus loved him so much, he wanted him to see that even though he handled money in a righteous way, the fact was he still served a false god. Because the scripture says he went away sorrowfully because he had many possessions. And what Jesus was doing to him is revealing to him that really he had another God in his life. And he would have never known it otherwise. He would have lived in this deception. I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. What if Jesus asked you to do that? Think about it. I mean... He would, he's not being unreasonable. He's being compassionate and loving, not allowing us to be deceived by thinking we're loving him when we're not. So it's a, it's a challenging story, but it's a good story. Because see, money's world is different than the world God's bringing you into, the grace world. Grace is God's action, freely willed, freely given. The character of God in his world and God's world, when you enter into his world, is that everything is freely given. It's a grace world. Grace is grace because it can't be bought. You can't earn your way. He just gives it to you. Isaiah says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy, eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's God's world. That's why I'm here. It's the opposite of money. Grace is the opposite of money. Grace is about giving. Money is about keeping, selling, and owning, and security. Grace is a gift. It's protected by God and available to others. Money, you get a hold of it. You keep it. It's not available to others. See, God's only way of acting is giving, and we are born into his family and to be like him. And the world, God's world, things aren't, for sale. They're given. And therefore, when we enter into God's world, we demonstrate our most godlike characteristic when we are givers too. Because that's the way our father is. People could say, You're just like your papa. He's a giver too. And so are you. It's amazing. Jesus, you know, the scripture says. It's more blessed to give than to receive. 
Now, that's a, that's a scary statement too, isn't it? Do we really believe that? Now, come on. These are radical words, and they fly in the face of conventional wisdom. I mean, is it better to give than to get? I mean, come on, I'm open to a little receiving, right? But he says it's actually more blessed to give than to receive. It could, it's the key to developing a sense of fulfillment and God-like characteristic in us. That's how Jesus lived, and that's why he wants us to live like that. See, giving a tax something sacred. If I were to go to lunch with you and I'd say, tell me about your hobbies. You'd, you'd freely speak about those things. Oh, I like this. Tell me, what kind of food do you like? Oh, yeah, yeah. How's your family? Oh, yeah, yeah. How much money you got? <laughs> Why? I can talk about anything in your life. We're fine. But that's sacred. You see, there's, there, there is this, you don't touch that. It's private. That's sacred. By the way, no one wants to go to lunch with me today. <laughs> but giving is an act of destruction of a value that the world worships. It's an act of consecration to God. When Linda and I moved to St. Louis to start Jubilee Church, uh, we liquidated everything we had, and we brought it and and invested it in what God wants us to do here. And we bought a two-bedroom house in the woods because I like woods, I like trees, until this time of year and the leaves fall down. I'm not too thrilled about them then. But, <laughs> but we, we, we were going to uh, put a third bedroom. It had a little loft area. We are going to make a third bedroom up there, which would be a three-bedroom house and be our bedroom. And we're going to build an office for me, which is like my den or my man cave. And we found a contractor. We said, we don't think we can afford to do both. We can do one. And he said, oh, no, no, I can get you in both of those. I can do both of those. Really? Yeah, yeah. A lot of custom work here. You know, I'll need some money up front and all that. And so uh, he looked the real deal. He had uniforms with his name on it and name on his truck. And I didn't realize those are cheap to get. And he brought in equipment and and he started demolishing my house dozed out the sidewalk, broke a water main, flooded our basement, things like that, you know, that happened when he tore the siding off my house and then tore the roof off my house. So half my house didn't have a roof on. And I was in a meeting in South Missouri. My wife called and said, the builder is gone. He's pulled out. Half the roof is off of our house and it's raining. And if I were to show you pictures you would say it's an uninhabitable place. It, it really, it looked as, I can't tell you the disaster that it was. And I remember sitting with my wife, come home, sitting with my wife. And we prayed, because we'd come here to start a church. And I felt that God spoke to me and said, this is a distraction. Don't go after him. Don't forgive him. I sent you here to plant a church. So we did. We just forgave him. And then as we're sitting there, 
we had the, like a celebration, which we, we had, in those days, we took offerings for our mission to plant churches across the United States. And I felt God spoke to me to give a certain amount. And most of my money's gone. You get that. Just write a check for a certain amount, a large amount, really, to that mission offering. And then I felt God spoke to me again and said, and write an equal check to your church plant. That seems unreasonable. I don't have a roof in my house. And what little I have, I'm... But I knew that it wouldn't have been my idea to imagine to do that. And I knew it wasn't the devil telling me to do it. So it had to be God. And I did it. You know, I'm grateful to God that he did that. Because I had to make a choice as to who I trusted and who was my God. And if I hadn't done that, my heart wouldn't have been totally God's. It shows I trusted what little I had left. And he helped me to do that. And since that time, it's been such a joy whenever God taps me on the shoulder to give. By the way, there is the third bedroom in my house. I have a roof on it, and I have my man cave. That's a whole other story. It seems unreasonable when God asks you things like that. But it's in order for us to stake our claim that I love God and I serve Him and nobody else. And it roots out the temptation to love money, even a little bit. Because you see, the love of money preys on both rich and poor. It's an equal opportunity employer. Well, I need to stop. I have a whole bunch of the rest of this that's absolutely three times as amazing as what I've just told you. (laughs) But you just have to take my word for it. What do you do? How do you respond to this? Well, I'd like to encourage you to dethrone money's sacredness in your life and God-like character by an inner attitude and an outward action. And every time I give, I rejoice tangibly that I'm exercising one of my most godlike manifest qualities, the world of grace, being a giver. And when it comes time for my offerings, I'm thrilled with the fact that that is probably one of the more manifest true acts of worship because the word worship means to ascribe worth to. And when I do that, I'm saying, you're my God. You alone are my God here. I'm ascribe. It's a tangible expression of who is my God. I used to struggle years ago with giving. I'm glad God broke that cycle in my life. And now it's a joy. And we, I pray about each year, Lord, here's how I pray. Not what do you want me to give. I said, what do you want to make available through me this year? And what he wants to make available is unreasonable. But when I get to the end of the year and I look, where did that come from? 
You have to trust him to work like that. You have to put your faith in him. Are you recognizing whether you're held at all, even remotely, even a little bit, by money's power? That's a hard sermon to preach. It always is. Can you talk because everyone thinks the church is after your money. We're not after your money. I'm after your heart for Jesus. This will set you free. You'll discover things about God and his supply and love in your life that you never imagined possible. He's come to set you free. Freedom from the bondage of idols and freedom from the bondage of money. Amen? Amen. You can stand up and I'll just pray for you.